This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to the Chinwag. The Chinwag. The Chinwag. <laughs> Good to nice see you, to my see, man. Nice to see you, sir. This is this is Stephen Ozma. <laughs> that is correct. And this is Paul Giamatti. Uh, very good. Uh, very good. I said Ozma. You didn't say Giamatti, but that's okay. That's Should right. it be Giamatti? Like, yeah, that's a, that is. That's yeah. what it's supposed to be. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Do, do Italians uh, hit you with the right pronunciation, or are no, they it, also Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. No. They do. People get... Uh, it's weird. It's a weird thing to say your name two different ways. Your own name to yeah, say it, me to too, mispronounce me it because it's like it's a strange thing. Oh, the weird. The world is a weird and wondrous <laughs> place, Steve. How are you doing? How was uh, how's how how's uh, how was the weekend? Uh, I was very good. I had a great time. Um, I didn't do too much. I am uh, reading a whole bunch of stuff. It's great that uh, some of our guests are so smart that we've got to read up on their <laughs> their it's books true. and their stories. It's absolutely so. true. And in fact. We have been we have been uh, reading up on uh, the next uh, guest that we're going to have because <laughs> yes we're going to talk to Ted Chang who is arguably one of the great living science fiction writers and, and I think arguably so. one of the greatest practitioners of science fiction of the art yeah uh, he has a small body of incredibly deep profound and amazing work and I, I think he he crafts these short stories beautifully and each one of them. Yeah. He's he's the closest thing we have now to somebody like Borges or yeah. the kind of those great kind of philosophical writers. And I guess he I was think. into uh, Isaac Asimov and uh, some of the classic writers, but we didn't Arthur C. Clarke. We didn't ask him about uh, yeah. Clifford yeah. Samak, the, oh, the yeah. hidden no, gem of sci-fi. Well, and we'll get him back here, and well, he is the hidden gem of yeah. sci-fi. Well, we'll get him back here and to actually ask him more about the history of science fiction yeah. and his relationship to science fiction. But yes, our guest today is Ted Chang. He, his fiction has won four Hugo, four Nebula, and four Locus Awards, which is basically cleaning out any like science fiction <laughs> yeah, award you can every get. Every award possible. Basically. And he has been featured in Best American Short Stories. Yeah, and his debut collection, Stories of Your Life and Others, has been translated into 21 languages the title story was adapted into a wonderful feature film called Arrival, and I have That's a feeling movie. that many of our uh, members of our community will know Arrival quite well, I suspect. Yeah. And if you don't yeah, know it, make sure you see that It's film a really too. good movie. It's a really, it's one of the best science fiction movies of, in quite a while. He also writes on the topic of technology for the New Yorker magazine. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I know that you are, Steve. Yeah. I'm really, really uh, thrilled to have him joining the Chinwag today. Welcome, Mr. Ted Chang. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. 
That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello, Ted. Welcome to Chinwag. Welcome. Thanks very much. Um, I sort of figured if Paul Giamatti asks you on a podcast, you really don't have a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Wow, that is nice. Thank you. Thank you. That's that's a nicer reaction than probably most people have had. (laughs) Yeah, how could I say no? Thank you. I couldn't. The nature of the chin wag, Ted, is that we take all kinds of left turns and we don't stay <laughs> on any topic in a sustained way. But uh, I wanted to ask you about UFOs. Um, <laughs> and so there's a lot of non sequiturs here. You've written a lot about alien cultures and tech, and you've you've done a lot of speculative narratives and thinking about it. And it's so hot in the news now And I myself, Paul and I have talked about this, I'm quite skeptical, but I'm also kind of more excited than I've ever been because of some of the video and the fact that the government's involved. I don't know whether I'm getting just suckered by this stuff or not, but what's your general sense of the probability that we we have some um, alien life forms here? Or do you think this tech is just a foreign government or the whole thing is just a charade? And are you generally skeptical that we've been visited at all by these things in the first place? Any or all of those? I am profoundly skeptical that we have ever been visited by uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and profoundly skeptical that there is any anything in like some Pentagon basement. Um <laughs> Okay, we're done here, Ted. <laughs> so, so okay, so... Um, Are you skeptical about intelligent life anywhere else in the galaxy or universe? No, no, I'm not, I'm not skeptical okay. about that at all. We, we don't have any good evidence for it, but, you know, it is, it, it is an entirely plausible hypothesis. But, you know, that is uh, almost, almost completely unrelated to believing that we have been visited in the past mm-hmm. or that, you know, we, we have been visited very recently. Uh, so as an analogy, let's say someone came to you and said, the Pentagon has Darth Vader in a basement. Um, the, yeah. I'd believe that. <laughs> you know, the, you know, if, he, if someone came to you and said, the battle between the Empire and the Rebellion has reached our neck of the solar system, and <laughs> Darth Vader was in, a sh- in one of the, his, his fancy TIE fighter and it crashed, and the government uh-huh. you know, has recovered his, his TIE fighter and have, have him held in you know, in a jail cell underneath the Pentagon, how much credence would you give them? Well, I suppose not, much. N- not in that instance. <laughs> yes, I mean because well, what we're talking about a fictional character that I know doesn't exist. That that is very close to what is happening. The the difference between the, <laughs> these two scenarios between you know the the government having Darth Vader in a jail cell and you know <laughs> the government having like remains of you know like a downed UFO. And, you know, uh, some, gray. some little, little green man, yeah. you know, the difference between those is minuscule. It is almost imperceptible compared to the distance between either of those and, you know, say any, any finding of extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. 
um, in a in a very important sense because you know they are examples of someone basically mistaking a story for reality. Interesting. And um, you know, in in the same way that you can't prove that the Pentagon doesn't have Darth Vader in uh, in a jail cell, but if someone came to you and said that, you would not spend any time at all evaluating their claim. <laughs> you know, you Paul would, you, might. I, I, no, <laughs> no oh so God. it's so it's true. It's a true statement that isn't provable. Ultimately, you can't prove it, but it's obviously true that, that they it, don't have. You know, you you can be as confident about that as you can be about anything. So you know, I like if it turns out they do, yeah, that would blow your mind. You know, <laughs> it would blow yes. your mind. Let's take let's take another example. Paul once played uh, an assassin in a movie, a really vicious assassin who led a gang of assassins. Now, if I were to say, like, Paul Giamatti is actually an assassin who leads a vicious gang of assassins. Um, this is a great, great story. And, you know, so, and of course, like, so Stephen, how much credence are you going to place in this claim? Um, you know, Paul is, of course, going to deny it because assassins- He wants to keep working ass in assassins, Hollywood. Assassins so are always going to deny that- uh, Right. That that because yeah right it's part of the job. So Stephen, with the you know understanding that of course Paul would deny that he is an assassin and tried <laughs> to like uh, kill Clive Owens who was protecting a baby, you know, um, <laughs> you know, you know of course of course Paul would deny that if someone says like I am quite certain and if someone says like I am completely rational I'm a, you know I'm 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 just trying to consider the evidence. And you know, based on my investigation, I'm you know, I'm pretty sure Paul Giamatti is is a vicious assassin. Stephen, how much how much time would you spend evaluating that claim? Uh, it's a great it's a great thought experiment. This is what your books do so well, what your stories do so well. Of course, like if you ask me this, it's kind of a it's a weird because I'm a trained philosopher. I think if you had asked me this 10, 20 years ago, I'd be like, I'm not going to give this any time of my, at all. But as I've gotten older, and maybe my brain's softer, I'm like, well, maybe maybe my, my sense of what's reasonable is much broader than it was when I was younger. So are you saying that you, you, you are going to assign a significant probability to the, to the statement, to the assertion that Paul Giamatti is you know, a vicious assassin? I don't want to rule it out entirely, but yes, the probability <laughs> probability would be very small. Yeah, maybe infinitesimally small. I've, but it, I've it's, <laughs> uh, first of all, the one thing, first thing I want to point out, uh, Ted Chang, is that I'm astounded that you've seen shoot him up. That I'm amazed. <laughs> That's the thing that might be come out. I might come out of this the real conversation most amazed that you have seen shoot him up. Have you actually seen that movie? I have. Did you enjoy Fantastic. that Fantastic. I did. I did. <laughs> do, do you enjoy action movies like that and stuff like that? I yeah, I'm 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 an action movie fan and I have to say it was a delight to see you in an action movie role. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And playing a particularly brutal killer like that. But and I I get what you're saying and so what's interesting to me is what so you think in some sense in terms of UFOs and aliens in the basement of the Pentagon, it's as if We've become our imaginations have become a dumping ground of all this kind of popular cultural imagery, <laughs> and people are having a hard time distinguishing between what's what was obviously not real and what is real. Stephen and I talk a lot about this: the kind of our imagination running amok, mm. 
and that in some sense, that's what's happening here. People are not able to sort of differentiate these two things. That is what I think is happening. Um, there are people who have have experiences which, you know, I can't explain, but um, I don't need to be able to explain them in order to, you know, say like, that is not, you know, what you think <laughs> happened is not what is actually happening. Because, yeah, if someone if someone said, I, you know, I had an experience which convinced me that Paul Giamatti is, is a vicious assassin, it's like... I don't know why that person thinks that. We could have an interesting conversation about why someone thinks that. But at no point is, you know, the the subject under serious discussion whether Paul Giamatti is actually a vicious assassin. Mm -hmm. But there are people currently who are believing a lot of really wacky stuff. I mean, there are people who believe right now that, that JFK is not dead. And it's very hard to distinguish whether they're playing at something in order to kind of be contrarian or to be provocative or how much they actually believe it. And I, and some people do seem to en masse be believing kind of crazy things these days. I wonder how much of that has to do with social media and stuff like that. How much of it is that is eroding people's ability to to base things in fact in some way, that the that the basis of fact is eroding because of just this constant quick fast-moving influx of crazy information is maybe actually allowing people to believe crazy stuff more than they used to even. I'm not sure that there's an increase. It'd be interesting to see like some sort of data about you know, that because the National Enquirer used to sell lots and lots mm-hmm. of copies before the, you know, the realm of social media. You know, whatever wacky thing. Uh, human you know, baby, the, alien yeah, abduction. Human babies. And, yeah, yeah sure. the weekly yeah. world news or whatever. You yes. Know, those yes. were popular you know, well before social media. They were you know, in every supermarket. Do we have any good data to say that people are uh, believing in that more now than they are in the past? I'm not saying that they aren't. It's just that like, mm. I'm not sure what the data would look like to support that. Here's a suggestion. Like you, you wrote this story that like I really liked a lot called Omphalos. You sort of were imagining what would it be like if 19th century natural theology was still the science of the day. Like we were still operating under the guise that if you looked at nature, you'd see the handiwork of God. And the then you're sort of six thousand years old yeah. and stuff like that. And, and Omphalos means belly button. Uh-huh. And so it's a great story, and I, I really love it. And you're sort of thinking like, well. It, what would it be like if your science was built on a very different foundation? And the history of science shows us like that this is true, like in the actual history of science. And then I had the strange good fortune to interview Ken Ham, who's the director of the Creation Museum in Kentucky. And he really is like this character in your story. Like, he believes that the Earth is like 6,000 years old, that the Grand Canyon was made in a, in the flood. And he... I, I would, I would want to dismiss him as insane, insane, but he was strangely reasonable, except his imagination and his logic had was built on this completely erroneous foundation. And I just find that really interesting. Like I, I just, I don't know what to do with that exactly. But like Paul was saying, the conspiracies are sort of like that. You can find people who are totally rational, but that down at the bottom, the foundation of their beliefs are just really wacky. And they have no way to check it against external reality because they only talk to other creationists or they only talk to other 
you know, conspiracy people like in their little bubble. So I think like the social bubble is also contributing maybe to the problem. That is definitely an issue. It's hard to compare to compare across, you know, decades. Yeah. Um, there were certainly times in the past when people uh, heard from a very sort of limited set of people and mm -hmm. yeah, they could all uh, sort of reinforce each other. That phenomena I think has been going on, you know, probably forever. You know, now, um, you know, it has taken on a different form with, uh, you know, these sort of social media or online echo chambers. And yeah, arguably it is more dangerous now because of, you know, sort of the speed of the, of the internet and, mm. you know, how these things have been kind of weaponized for political purposes. That is maybe uh, like the most plausible argument for us being in a fundamentally different era. The fact that uh, uh, it is now, I think, very easy to weaponize it for political gain. Uh, more broadly speaking, there have always been people who believed, you know, things that uh, I will say, you know, completely not true. They were surrounded by people who believed the same things. So that that I think is kind of a, you know, kind of a longstanding characteristic yeah. of human culture. The speed with which it happens to me seems to be the thing that's most pernicious, actually. One thing will hit you, then another thing will hit you, then another thing will hit you. And that, that seems to me to be the difference, that you can't process anything before another thing is hitting you. It might not even be the quality of the information or the amount of it. To me, it seems like the speed is crazy. Does that seem true? It is definitely uh, um, a, a big change. Although, you know, like, the, the speed of information also, you know, is occurring even, you know, for completely legitimate information. Because, you know, like, uh -huh. back in the day, you would read a newspaper once a day and then maybe yeah. watch the nightly news. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, people are refreshing a page every few minutes. Yeah. The idea that you would expect to get, you know, new updates about, you know, even, you know, factual yeah. things Every few minutes, that yeah. expectation is... Well, that, that whole thing with the Titan submersible just recently was just yeah. this crazy example of like this constant updating of this thing that was clearly just, uh, you know, they weren't going to find this thing anytime soon. And it was just a crazy newsfeed constantly. So like our expectations about how rapidly we should be getting updates, you know, that has changed. Even things like the you know, 24 hour cable news. It wasn't that long ago when that idea seemed absurd. You know, why, yeah. how could you possibly fill 24 hours a day with news? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, you, you can't. And then what begins to happen is then you have a lot of people speculating about the Talking actual heads. news. Yeah. That's mostly what you have is people then speculating. And so then you have this kind of playing around with the news. Of anxiety. That, you know, should be being presented as just fact to whatever extent you can just present fact. It's getting all bent out of shape by six people sitting there constantly chewing over it and, and, sort, of, and sort of confusing it in some ways. And that seems like another change, that it becomes editorializing on top of it. Constant editorializing is mostly what's happening rather than fact presentation. Yes. These are big changes which are affecting, you know, sort of our attention span and how we process the information we get, even, even you know, in largely factual realms. But these factors are also at play in, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to, you know, conspiracy theories or just stories that people are spreading. There's an anthropologist who, I think David Wengro, and he looks at like the history of 
when these monocultures meet other monocultures and then become like, you have like trade centers, you know, port towns where the East and the West are meeting each other historically. And he, cl he claims that whenever there's this kind of very cosmopolitan hub, you find lots of folklore imagery of monsters. And because um, his argument is something like when you're encountering all these different people with different beliefs and they look different, it raises the anxiety level. This is his thesis. And so then the monsters are sort of ways in which people are trying to like, I guess, project their anxieties into culture and try to handle it and deal with it. And I'm wondering with all the news cycle and just constant 24 seven, like stories of like famine in Sudan and civil war over here, I wonder if it is this sort of like the higher anxiety level. And then I wonder if we are seeing more like aliens and monsters in, in popular culture as a way to try to mediate some of that. Does this make sense? Is, it, is this the kind <laughs> of externalizing your neuroses I and don't stuff? Know it's kind of, of like, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. I think that is entirely plausible. I, I, I would want to see, you know, someone say like, <laughs> okay, how do we quantify this? How much of this was, was happening, you know, in these various decades in the past? How does it compare to what we have today? But on a related note, when when Orson Welles did his War of the Worlds radio broadcast, and um, it seems like, you know, a lot of people thought it was actually happening. And that was probably a reflection of the anxieties at the time. What we, you know, call UFOs first, the reports of UFOs, you know, really started during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, probably a reflection of the anxieties of the time. Uh I'm not sure how to measure that. You know, I'm not sure how to how to compare the anxieties of the Cold War mm -hmm. with the anxieties of today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think you know, a similar mechanism is, is at work. Certainly something that people are anxious about now is AI, in a sense. Mm -hmm. it's a, that that's the sort of like boogeyman right now that seems very sort of real world. And this sort of singularity idea, which is something I'm going to ask you to define Sorry, I'm taking another turn here, but it's something that I'm <laughs> going to ask you to define because I'm sure it's a term I'm using incorrectly, which to me, it's just like the machines are going to take over. That's what it is. And I'm sure that's not exactly what it means, but I'm interested in to, to talk to you about AI and about the fears of it, the pessimistic views of it, the dystopian views of it, and if there's a utopian version of it. Because I talked to a guy who says to me, the singularity has already happened. As far as he's concerned, when we invented the wheel and we discovered fire, the machines, we became so dependent on the machines that that they've kind of been ruling us this whole time. Um, so the current usage of singularity was really introduced um, in 1993 in a, a paper that the science fiction writer and mathematician Werner Vinge wrote. Mm -hmm. He wrote a, a paper called The Coming Technological Singularity. And what he meant by it was that a point in the near future where machine intelligence would exceed human intelligence and then rapidly uh, become you know, ever greater, ever more powerful, it would basically mean the end of human history. Not that you know, we would end, but he saw it as this fundamental uh, shift into a realm where Humans are not the primary actors, and it would be essentially impossible for us to uh, predict or imagine what happened after that point. For him, the singularity was kind of a, a predictive event horizon. His idea was that, yeah, you can sort of see a bit into the future. You can imagine, you know, like what's going to happen in the next few decades. 
but once you hit the singularity, all bets are off. All you, bets uh, are off. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. You can't. Okay. You cannot. You cannot yeah. predict what's going to happen after that. And that paper turned out to be you know, very influential, and it, it it has really gained a life of its own. The, the idea of, of the singularity has gained a life mm-hmm. of its own. So, to sort of tie into what I was saying before about you know sort of people kind of mistaking a story for reality, mm-hmm. um, I think there is something similar at work here. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence that. You know, Werner Vinge is a science fiction writer. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And he was sort of offering a narrative which is very sort of compelling in a sense. It's a narrative which really sticks in the mind. If it weren't in a science fiction story, we'd say like, oh, that is a really interesting idea. It is, su- And, you know, it is such an interesting idea that, you know, I think a lot of people, they wound up thinking about it as a thing that that could actually happen. That is how how Vinji was proposing it. He he did th- he did think that it would it would actually happen. I guess I tend to think of it as, yeah, it's a very compelling story idea, right? But um, that's entirely different than saying it's something that will actually happen or could actually happen. As for like, has the singularity already happened in any? Yeah. You know, um, there are people you know who. Uh, discuss this in science fiction and in sort of adjacent communities. And I think, you know, the, the, the best uh, argument I've heard for the singularity or already happening would place it not at the invention of the wheel or the, you know, um, cause technology is, is part of being human. It is our nature, you know, to, to create technology. Uh, so, you know, technology uh, has been with us from the very beginning but like, if, if you're going to pick a pick an invention, which at which point we sort of lost control mm. and the technology mm. took over, the suggestion that I uh, have heard that I like is that the the singularity happened when we invented the limited liability corporation. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Kia's first three row all electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Because that is the technology which really took over and changed society in a way that uh, you know sort of moved it out of the human realm uh, because ah. you know that idea was sort of the beginning of the, this idea of that corporations are a type of entity which uh, have an importance, have a significance that they're in some ways more important than people. 
that they're, you know, uh-huh. they, they can be more powerful than people and they are sort of abstracted from people. You know, uh-huh. uh, they exist kind of independently of people. Uh-huh. And our society has now sort of become, you know, designed to further the goals of corporations. Corporations, yeah. Uh-huh. And so there is a really good argument to be made that, you know, that was when the singularity happened. So you mean like sort of risk assessment, like actuarial kind of things, like sort of that kind of thing? Sort of the idea that shareholder profit is ah. is the most important thing. Oh, I see. And uh-huh. that you can you can make a you know an almost you know a potentially unlimited amount of money, but there there is very little downs potential downside. Um, it frees up uh, or it empowers capital that uh-huh. you know that maybe arguably you know capital wasn't empowered before. Uh-huh. Uh huh. There's legal protections for corporations that didn't exist even like ten years ago. Or, or, but but I. So are you saying that the that the capital machine, the system, has is, no longer it, has the constraints of like human factor or right. human size concerns, right. and as a result, it's almost like we're that notion of singularity is is that humans are just going to be crushed under the boot of, of late stage capitalism. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Okay. Because the AI will more effectively run all of this stuff than human beings. Well, okay. So when people, you know, right now when they talk about the singularity and, you know, being afraid that AI will take over and we won't be able to stop them. Yeah, they're, they're talking about what I, I, I think is basically, you know, a science fiction story. It's a story that's been around for a very long time. Uh, we currently cite things like the Terminator as an exemplar of it. But, if, you know, the idea that machines might or computers might take over, you know, that's been around for yeah. a century. And I personally, based on sort of my experience with computer technology, I don't think that is anything that we need to worry about. So that popular, you know, sort of the current contemporary fear of, you know, the singularity, I don't, I think is entirely unwarranted. However, the, the technology that is currently called AI, it is not a machine that is smarter than people. It is not a machine that has, you know, goals of its own. It's not a machine that, you know, wants things, you know, it's not a machine that's go- going to try and ensure its own survival, which are all, mm. you know, part of yeah. sort of the contemporary yeah. narrative. Yeah. That's the mistaken assumption, I think. Yeah. Right? So that's yeah. the, but that's that whole sort of catastrophic idea that yeah. they'll make themselves impossibly smarter. Yeah. They yeah. will make themselves smarter. Yes, that that is not anything that we need to worry about. What I think we, I could, agree, because it's not possible. They won't be able to do it. No, I, yeah, the, I don't. I don't think it's possible. But the the technology that people currently refer to as AI, I think the best way to understand it is it is a knife sharpener for the blade of capitalism. that's a good one yeah yeah it is a way for companies to gain greater control over their employees over their customers over everything Mm. um it is a way to extract more value out of people and then probably give it to shareholders it's mostly a way of uh sort of empowering the systems that we are constantly you know, struggling against and that most of us are kind of trapped in. It like streamlines greed is what it sounds like, right? It just makes it more efficient. And so the, the computers don't have the goals or the agenda. It's still human greed right, it's or selfishness. Deployment. You can't put a check on this thing. Paul and I were just reading this article about you. in order to feed the AI, you have to tag all these images and 
and texts. And that requires enormous human labor. Yeah. So like people in Nairobi are being paid like a dollar a day to like spend hours this identifying is a pictures. Right. This, this is, is a dog. dog. This yeah. is a yeah, this is this and is And then somebody's right. making billions at the top end from all that labor. It's like I, I was amazed to learn because I think I buy into this sort of notion that the AI at a certain point is in control and is building itself. But in fact, it still requires an enormous number of human beings at some baseline to be training it in how to be AI in some weird way. I, I, I had no idea about that. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. There's a researcher named Kate Crawford, and uh, she's done a lot of work on this. And, you know, one of the things she kind of says is that it's people all the way down. It's not artificial and it's not intelligence. It's an industry built on the labor of humans, but often, you know, in a way that hides all of that. There is this attempt to make it seem as if, you know, this it's all a machine, but we're we're only shown like, oh well look, here's Chat GPT. It's you know, it's this mm -hmm. incredibly powerful computer. First, it was built off of the internet, all the all the content of, you know, uh -huh. of billions of web pages that humans wrote. And then all that information was sort of processed and you know uh, blended together, but it also requires an incredible amount of human labor to yeah. sort of render it useful. And so, yeah, there are people involved at every step, and the vast majority of them are uncompensated. You know, the people who wrote the, the provided the information yeah. on the internet, they're not being paid, and the people who are doing this sorting through of data, they're. They're being paid almost nothing, and a lot of times yeah. they're forced to look at, you know, like, really horrible stuff be uh -huh. because that's— Like, what's pornography and what isn't? Right, well, what's pornography, like yeah. what's, yeah, what's yeah. unacceptable and toxic. Murder, it sounds like yeah. a lot of it is actually trying to eliminate what's toxic and, and horrible so that you have this kind of genial thing that we're going to interact with that isn't going to have any of that in it. Yes, and it, it's, you know, sort of analogous to, you know, like the— uh, whenever we go to any store and we we buy a nicely, neatly packaged product off the shelf, and it all seems like, oh well, look how great this is, you know, the, you know, <laughs> yes. this product just appeared on the shelf, and yes. you know, I got it. And but of course, yeah. there's a huge infrastructure behind it. Um, yeah. There are giant, giant, you know, warehouses and industrial machinery and all these things. There are strip mines that are, you know, mm. that are sort of at the root of this. Right. And then there are, you know, huge assembly lines and semi-skilled laborers involved in all of that. And, yeah. but yeah, all of that is sort of hidden from us. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, what we see is just like, oh, these nicely packaged products on the shelf. And in AI. this instance, yeah, it's like, oh, I can make like a, I can make a funny picture that's a combination of it's Bugs Bunny He's a cowboy, and it's it's Bugs Bunny, it's John Wayne, or whatever. You can just do this fun stuff with it in a lot of ways. I was amazed to learn that there are people who are hired to sit and converse with the chatbot thing to teach it to have more human uh, responses. Yeah, which was just astonishing. So in, in a way, it's like what you're, I feel like what you're saying basically is it will only ever be as bad as we are in some way. Is that right? Well, I mean, the okay, so the you know, the technology that uh, is currently powering things like ChatGPT. It's fairly limited, which is not to say that you know there aren't cool things coming out of it. Mm, yeah, um, it's I, I think a, 
a mistake to regard it as intelligent. Like to the extent that it gives you correct answers, it's like, well, okay, that's what a regular search engine does. That's what a library does. Um, so old school. Yeah. So, you know, uh, but what do you say to the people who say, arguably, though, it's what we do too, though? It's that we draw on this sort of storehouse of information. How is it really all that different from us? But people are not, are not libraries. People are, uh, are not just a collection of information. Sometimes, you know, people call these, these, these programs large language models. That is, that is the conventional term. But, from a linguistic standpoint, they're not using language at all. They are using text because <laughs> language language is a mode of communication. It's a means of, uh, by which you know one person or one entity communicates with another. Um, animals c- communicate. We happen to use language, but we're still engaged in a process which is you know uh, similar to what animals do when they communicate with each other. There is someone you know trying to you know convey information to someone else. ChatGPT has no intention. It has no c- intent of to, to communicate. It is not trying to, you know, say anything to you. You can think of them as like autocomplete on steroids, generating what is the most likely word to come next. Of course, there are huge differences in a technical sense uh, between the autocomplete on your phone and ChatGPT. You know, uh, there's not that big a difference, I would say, in terms of like how much communicative intent is there. You know, when mm-hmm. when your phone suggests the next word for, for you when you are texting, there is no communication going on between you and you know your phone. Mm-hmm. When people use language, there is something else going on underneath, which is entirely absent from programs like ChatGPT. There was that thing just in the paper recently where the guy was having the conversation and it took all these weird dark turns. It was in the Times, yeah. And and it did at a certain point become interesting to me (laughs) when the thing started insisting that it was in love with the guy. I love you. Your wife doesn't love you as much as I do. And the guy kept telling it the thing to stop was interesting to me because I just, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Why didn't it? Was it just caught in some sort of glitch? Because looking at it from my completely fantastical actor's brain, I was like, it's getting pissed off at the guy. It's 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 coming back at the guy in this passive aggressive way because he violated its boundaries. Uh, he was insisting that it violate its boundaries. So it started testing his boundaries. It just appears that way is, is what you're saying. But I, th- so, I think you're you're projecting that like, yeah, I'm that, sure I that, am. No, I'm sure I am projecting what, it. What the large but, language thing does is it it combs like a whole bunch of mi- romance novels for the last but it was such years. a peculiar thing it, for it to be doing in that yeah, moment. It, and it yeah. wouldn't it was so odd. And I didn't know whether that's because it got stuck somewhere that it couldn't get out of or what was happening with it. But it was very strange. I think Stephen is right that, you know, uh, it is basing that on you know a lot of like sort of romance fiction and you know probably a lot of fan fiction online. <laughs> There's a certain interaction which looks like oh well actually this this pattern mm-hmm. looks like like two characters in in a mm-hmm. romance novel having uh-huh, a fight, right. and so it's like right. oh okay so oh. here's a pattern, and so it's That's like funny. I can continue this pattern because uh-huh. you know, know ChatGPT is like it's going you know. Uh, it, this seems like a very plausible way to continue this interaction based on, yes. you know, thousands <laughs> of examples that started out similar to this. And it's like, yes. how did, how, what happens next? Well, it's this, uh, this series of text tokens. It's a sort of an escalating conflict 
Um, (laughs) Because that's kind of a trope of fiction, uh, of romance fiction, of fan fiction. Right. (laughs) Can I I ask you a question, though, Ted, for both of you guys, really, but let's grant everything you've said about, and I agree with you that that I don't think computers have intentionality uh, because I think you need feeling, feeling states and bodies for that to happen. But let's grant all that. What about this though? What is it called? Is it uh, super stimulus? And it's like when human beings have a kind of psychology that prefers a more melodramatic version of the stimulus. And also there's this human psychology of parasociality, which is I can sort of become, people probably project on Paul because they've seen him in shows that they have like a great friendship with him because he's Mm -hmm. a celebrity. Now, if you put these two things together, like the the human psychology is kind of a sucker, aren't we going to end up with more like actual romances between humans and AI robotics? Because you can, people seem to be entering into like, like this is my partner now. I come home from work and I talk yeah, to her. Yeah, that is happening a lot. And yeah. I got a robot too for the physical stuff. You know what I mean? Like it seems yeah. to be tilting. People are willing to give up real love and friendship in order to have this mock version because it's so high level. Yeah. So, um, and I think it, what uh, you were talking about, the supernormal stimulus. Yeah, um, supernormal stimulus. Yeah, what is you. that? Just, just, just yeah, say what maybe that clarify. is again for for. So, um, so I like a common example is that, um, if you show a bird, a real egg and a big fake egg, they <laughs> will preferentially try to sit on and, you know, hatch the big fake egg because awesome. it's, you know, uh, it's got more, it's, it's stimulating yeah, them. Yeah. It's got more eggness. And so, <laughs> right. you know, uh, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. right. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another uh, example that for humans is that, you know, junk food, junk food has an intensity of flavor, which, you know, is, uh, you know, doesn't really, you know, it's not found in nature. Um, and uh, <laughs> now the colors of it most yeah, of the time are not yeah, found yeah. in nature. And so, yeah. you know, junk food is very appealing because it's like, oh my God, this is, you know, <laughs> it, this is, it's a sensory blast, which, you know, is not found in nature, but we prefer it because you know, yeah. you know, uh, um, it's it's giving us you know more of what we want than you know uh, than the, the real re- thing. Yeah, than right. yeah, than the real thing. Right. So, um, romantic relationships with bots. Yes, you know, I think that is a, that is a, a concern. Uh, it's a problem, and is it because? 
it will feed back to you more of what you want to hear. Is that what you're saying, Steve? That it will like sort of press those. Yeah, I'm guessing. So I think one of the tough things about relationships with other human beings is that there is uh, always going to be you know a certain back and forth that you know the other person they have needs and you have to you know support them in their needs too. Um, ah. They have you know they will want things from you. You will mm-hmm. have to make an effort. You know, <laughs> that is one of the things about, you know, like any sort of real human relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or, you know, just a friendship, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you will be called upon to make an effort. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes you will have fights and then you're going to have to work through them. That is not fun. But yeah, a, 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 ro- a robot, you know, a chatbot, they will never get in a fight. They have no needs of their own. They have no wants of their own. They will never ask you, you know, to make an effort. It can really be all about you. You know, it, you, you know, it never has to be yeah. about them. And so, you know, that is very appealing. You know, when, when people are very young, you know, they often, you know, break up. They're not used to this. They don't know how to do this. And, you know, it, uh, uh, and they thought it would just be easy. Like if you are new to relationships, you'll, and you have the choice of like, well, okay, so here's this thing that will require a lot of work. And here's this thing that won't require a lot of work. It would be very tempting to go for the thing that doesn't require a lot of work. And, you know, at the sort of other end of the sort of chronologically, there are people who have been through a lot of bad relationships. <laughs> yeah. They are just yeah. tired. They're just yeah. exhausted. Right. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they have just, you know, had a lifetime of shitty, be, being treated mm. shittily by people. Mm. And so it's like, I just want someone yes. who, who- Forget it. Yeah. Let's just have a robot. You know, isn't that, I just isn't want that someone who the... tells me, like, I look nice yeah. today I, yeah. and, you know, doesn't, doesn't, you know, yeah. make me feel shitty. Isn't that, kind of the, isn't that kind of the utopian ideal with the AI in general, though, that we've reached this uh, point of exhaustion as a species? <laughs> and it's a little bit like, it would be really great if this thing could make things easier for us. <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in some ways, that would be the nice results of this AI, wouldn't it? That it's like, it will be a post-work world where oh, we don't have yeah. to do all these things the good result of this possibly and and you never i don't really ever hear people talk much about what's going to be good about this stuff except i only hear what's menacing and gonna be like weird and we're all gonna fall in love with our computers and it's always dark and menacing and if there's a good side of it i have one suggestion for a good side there's a huge community of young men they're sometimes called incels Guys are all lunatics. Well, no, I don't think they are. Some of them are, but some of them are just involuntarily celibate, and they feel like they haven't. They've lost out. Maybe they weren't as handsome as the these other guys. And so, I hate to say it this way, but maybe AI robotics could come to give them a more fulfilled. I don't know. I hear myself saying this. I know. That sounds terrible. That sounds (laughs) like the bad result to me. Come in here and bail me out. Okay. What the hell are you talking about? That sounds dystopian. Okay. So, um, some people have suggested artificial girlfriends, uh, maybe reduce some of the, you know, anger and hostility that Uh, we see in those guys. Yeah. Certain communities like the incel community. 
it's maybe possible, but you know, yeah. I, I think I guess the the <laughs> argument, the counter argument, which I think is more likely, is that a lot of what drives the incel community is this sense of entitlement. There are people who who feel like I deserve more than what I'm getting. If that is the underlying you know sort of psychological psychological mechanism at work, then you will almost certainly not find the yeah. artificial girlfriend yeah. uh, satisfying because no. it will always seem like the lesser, you know, not as good as a real girlfriend, you know, for, for it to really satisfy them, we would need to perceive it as be the, as being better than a human girlfriend. And, you know, the narcissism. Yeah. yeah. And that, that seems unlikely that, that, yeah, yeah, that an artificial girlfriend will seem like, oh, well, I'm (laughs) high status because I got the artificial girlfriend. I don't see it as as working the, the way that you know, no, I don't, I'm with you, scenario. Ted. I don't see that. Yeah, I don't see the upside to the incel community. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. I, I just wanted to uh, follow up with what Paul was saying a minute ago about, say, like the the post work future or like the you know more utopian scenarios, and you know why don't we really hear a lot about them? There is a certain vague rhetoric among people who say like, well, AI is going to create you know uh, you know just this great future. Uh, for us, but but yeah, it, it is necessarily super super vague because they cannot lay out a a detailed or you know, plausible route from here to there using the AI that we have. Even if they were able to provide a uh, like you know a kind of more detailed scenario, the idea of say a shorter work week has been around for decades. In the early part of the 20th century, they assumed that you know within a few decades you know humans would only be working like maybe 15 hours a week because mm-hmm. of automation. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, that has not turned out, you know, it, it, you know, people work longer hours now than they ever have, yeah. even though we have all this automation and, you know, at the risk of repeating of myself, I'm going to say like the culprit is capitalism. You know, <laughs> that, uh, uh, capitalism is why we don't have a 15 hour work week when, mm-hmm. you know, when we potentially could, given the advances of, you know, of technology over the last, you know, 50 years. Um, and then with regard to, say, uh, again, you know, the maybe utopian scenario that you mentioned, Paul, about like, okay, so idealized relationships, relationships that don't require work, artificial girlfriends or boyfriends who, you know, it's just, it's just always easy. Well, I got, or I guess two questions, you know, one is, uh, how likely is it? And the, uh, the other is, you know, is that actually, you know, such a great scenario? Because uh, again, like if a if a company is selling you this product, like an artificial girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, their goal is to you know, continue to make money off of it. So that will probably be like some subscription model. Um, <laughs> yeah, upgrades. And, you know, so right. so so in a sense, purchases. You are kind of dependent. You know, they what they, they what you know the subscription model is a way of sort of to create dependency. And so like you know. If you have this artificial girlfriend or boyfriend that you know you uh, just really love, then you will be sort of beholden. Like it's like okay, I gotta pay my monthly subscription yeah. fee. But that actually happened. There was a story in Japan where a guy had a sort of virtual girlfriend. Uh, she was this in a in a sort of jar. It looked like, and they did. They canceled her. The company yes, canceled yes, her because yes. they were going to upgrade or something. And he lost this woman he'd yes. be having a relationship with for a while. Yes. It, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, actually, yeah, it, 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 it's yeah, it, it's and like more recently, there was this company called Replica with a K, and uh. they sell these chatbots, which a lot of people use as sort of like girlfriends or boyfriends, 
a while back, they added a feature for uh, sexy talk, you know, er- erotic uh-huh. conversation. And this was a very popular feature. But uh, earlier this year, they had to disable that feature because of some regulatory issues. But the thing is, you know, a lot of their customers, they were really, really upset because, you know, like the night before, they had been able to engage in erotic role right. play with their right. artificial, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend. And suddenly now their chatbot girlfriend is saying like, no, I can't talk about that. Like that's <laughs> super puritanical and, suddenly. And, yeah. and so like, so they, you know, they are suffering, you know, uh, they're suffering a, a kind of, you know, a kind of emotional trauma because they've been sexually yeah. rejected by uh, their yeah. artificial girlfriend or boyfriend. It's a lot of your stories kind of deal with something that's interesting because what's interesting is something I take from what you're saying is this idea that it's like in some ways it won't it won't be as good a thing to have because you'll be missing all the human elements of uh, for human growth but just having this thing that you can deal with these this has been amazing there's still yeah. so much more I want to ask yeah. you but I know it's I, we've taken up too much of your time but this is really it's thank it, you I, so I, much we're both huge admirers yeah. of yours love your work. And, yeah, it's really amazing stuff. So it's really, really nice to talk to you. Thanks very much for for having me. Uh, it's been great. Cool. Uh, I've had a, I've had a great time. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Chinwag is a production of Treefort Media and Touchy Feely Films, hosted and executive produced by Paul Giamatti and Stephen Asma. Executive producers for Treefort are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Dan Carey is executive producer for Touchy Feely. Our series producer is Rachel Whitley Bernstein. Original theme music by Luke Topp with additional music by Via Mardot. Oscar Guido is our executive in charge of production. Tom Monahan is head of audio for Treefort. Animation created by Alex Sokol. Editing and mixing by Jeff Neal. Lastly, for more information, go to chinwagpod.fm and find us on Instagram or TikTok at chinwagpod or on Twitter at chinwag underscore pod.